Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backshot on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivis of Romanian. Oh, I'm very happy to be back in the studio. Uh, we've had a lot of American news on our feeds this week from the ongoing fallout from the Mueller investigation to the heartwarming news of an adorable children's spelling bee. But today we're going to be bringing you the Aussie news that you might have not heard on your sound waves. That's right. It's National Reconciliation Week, allowing us time to reflect on the contributions and achievements of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. To discuss the triumphs and shortcomings of Reconciliation Week, we have Nathan Muji, sentence a Wiradjuri man from the Australian Museum. And after that, we're going to be hearing a story from our executive producer, Natalie Sekolovska, who has spoken to Nicola Henry from RMIT University about the laws surrounding revenge porn and why we should actually be calling it image-based abuse. Just a content warning for that story, we will be discussing sexual harassment and violence. We'll let you know closer to the segment as well. Finally, we are going to be hearing from Bella Ziadi, a high school student who is organizing a rally in response to the Alabama abortion ban, as well as the current laws surrounding abortion here in Australia. But before that, we, as always, invite you to text in your thoughts on the show. So please do that. It's uh, 0409-945-945 or tweet us in at FBI. That's right. Stay tuned for a banger of a show. Backchat. Text 0409-945-945. National Reconciliation Week is a time to reflect on our our shared history with First Nations peoples, as well as acknowledge and critically assess the notion of reconciliation when it comes to growing respectful relationships between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other Australians. While reconciliation has received broad public support, it's not without its legitimate critics. Some Indigenous Australians continue to view the reconciliation process as a government initiative that is designed for the benefit of white Australians uh, rather than addressing the needs of Indigenous people in regional and remote communities. We're lucky enough to have Nathan Sentence from the Australian Museum on the line today to help us understand the rhetoric around National Reconciliation Week and the ways in which we can genuinely move towards supporting and respecting First Nations peoples. Hi, Nathan. Uh, you're tomorrow. Hey, how's it going? Good. Um, thank you for coming on the show today. Um, just to start off, tell us about National Reconciliation Week. What does it mean to you? Um, so for me, National Reconciliation Week, it's, it's a really tough week because it doesn't quite mean anything. <laughs> I'm not, I've never been really certain of what it actually does mean. Um, I've been hearing it since I was quite young, and um, but even since I've started working in sort of the public service, it just feels like a week that I'm really busy doing things to entertain white people. Um, so uh, that's what it's always sort of felt like to me um, previously. So it's really and spun a lot of thoughts about what do we actually mean by reconciliation? What are we trying to achieve with it? So you've kind of illustrated some kind of uh, discrepancies around Reconciliation Week, but what other mm. criticisms are there around the campaign? Well, I think there's um, there's always been a campaign 
for the fact that reconciliation feels like a softening of our actual demands. So, like, um, earlier this week at Macquarie University, now Yukagori said, I don't really want reconciliation. I want my land back. And that sort of goes back to even what Gary, um, Professor Gary Foley said um, years ago where he said, um, what I'm really talking about is justice, and then what I get here back is I get told reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of, um, it feels like um, sort of, yeah, softening, and it doesn't really discuss, doesn't really touch on needs. It really sort of, it's like um, what John Howard sort of did with um, racial discrimination, end of racial discrimination day, where he changed that to being harmony day. And it really doesn't touch on what actually needs to be addressed. And it's more about um, feel like good feelings rather than talking about the bad stuff that's happening today and historically that needs to be rectified. So, Nathan, we've recently seen the appointment of Ken Wyatt as the first Indigenous Australia Minister for Parliament. But mm-hmm. in what ways has this led to better representation of Indigenous and First Nations people in government, if at all? Um, yeah, it's it's... It's always going to be an issue. Like, it's the same with um, that ABC documentary that came out early this year, like, who, um, when will we get an Indigenous Prime Minister? Mm. And it's that sort of thing where it's like, do we even want an Indigenous Prime Minister? Like, because still, at the end of the day, that's a colonial structure that's been part of a colonial government that's negatively affected us for 200, close to 250 years. Do we really want to be a part of that? Is, is the goal to get inside it and reform it or is to reinstate our own system and try and um, focus onto them. So there is the damage where it's like um, how much change can you actually make within the inside? And then there's the thing too where um, at the end of the day to sort of um, be in some of those high political positions, you do have to work with in that system which requires compromise, which means that, um, you know, um, Previously, like, um, Ken has had to, you know, vote against things that a lot of us in the community are for pro. So, so um, yeah, so there is those sort of things. So, yeah. So, uh, Nathan, do you believe that Mr. White's politics are representative of uh, Indigenous people across the country? And do you believe that it's possible for his participation to reach the compromise that you're talking about right now? Well, I think it's impossible for him to represent um, First Nations people off these, off these lands because there are so many of us and we're such a diverse range of people that no one person could represent us. Like, my opinion today on the radio will definitely not represent um, all First Nations people and either would Ken. So there is that sort of thing where um, like, you, you can't have one representative for First Nations people. It's, it's a similar with the idea of um, First Nations leaders. A lot of people Especially media will talk about how um, First Nations leaders want this or First Nations leaders want that. And it's like, um, are these um, community-appointed leaders or are these leaders that people have set are leaders because they are in sort of either high political roles or high corporate roles? So kind of being boxed into one box, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, kind of. Like, it's um, impossible to represent all First Nations people because there are so many First Nations voices. Um, So... Uh, that's basically it. So you can't have, um, like, having one representative meant to represent us all would be impossible. So, um, yeah, and I personally, I do not believe sort of the 
the main politics of the Liberal Party don't fit with sort of like a lot of my First Nations community members that I know. But but there are sort of First Nations communities, people that would um, see Ken as the, the catalyst for progress in this nation because he is the first ever um, Indigenous like um, affairs minister that is actually Aboriginal. So um, that can that could be a step forward. Like um, at least he comes from that experience and he knows what it is like to be Aboriginal in this nation. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're talking to Nathan Sentence, a Wiradjuri man from the Australian Museum about National Reconciliation Week. Now, Nathan, the recognition of Australia's First Peoples in the Constitution has been a deeply significant issue for some time now. Do you believe mm. the Uluru Statement is a possible victory for Indigenous people? Um, possibly. If it, um, if it's similar to like lots of actions, um, similar to like say treaty, where um, I believe the the amount of good it can have depends on how much um, compromise is willing to be had by sort of uh, the colonial government at the time. So um, I think the Uluru Statement of the Heart could have power, especially the voice aspect of that statement um, to have a, basically an advisory body within the government that uh, of um, different representatives of First Nations people as long as they have as long as that comes with a certain type of power an advisory body without that kind of power um, you know probably would not be able to enact change because that would mean that they could ease that governments at the time could easily take that advice and just disregard it um, so I think it is, I think um, just symbolically it can um, be a positive step um, uh, because it basically does say that we are um, starting to listen to um, what First Nations people want. So uh, I guess in your capacity as someone who is working uh, at the Australian Museum, mm. what do you believe the role of Indigenous history is when it comes to advancing the Indigenous affairs um, uh, the, the role of Indigenous affairs in the future. Well, I I, I don't think it's uh, I think it's it's indicative of like it's pretty indicative that the theme for Reconciliation Week this year is grounded in truth, and the theme mm-hmm. for NAIDOC Week in a couple of weeks also has truth in the title. It's Voice Treaty Truth. Um, I, I think because truth is a very important part of it. Um, mm-hmm. True history is a very important part of it. Um, Aboriginal people have always we've always felt that we're not our history has not been told. Um, and it is important because basically we, what, the where we live in today is a product of history. So it's not just um, talking about historical um, injustices, which need to be talked about anyway, so we can at least acknowledge them and acknowledge the pain that they've caused. It's also about rectifying the present, which has been created by those historical injustices. And the injustices today are connected to those ones of the past. So I think... Telling the true history also, you know, gets, um, especially for, we've at the Australian Museum have been doing something we call truth-telling tours this whole week, where we've been um, talking about um, truth uh, in the, um, about Australian history so that um, people can at least understand the Aboriginal perspective in regards to history. And hopefully that creates um, sort of change and them to understand, um, at least empathise with, Aboriginal perspectives on issues and to be a bit more critical of 
mainstream narratives in history and media. Um, Nathan, you've mentioned uh, that you are incredibly busy this week, National Reconciliation <laughs> Week, and I wish we could have gotten you a coffee if you came into yeah. the studio. Um, I guess, like, just to round us off, we'd love to hear, and our listeners would love to know, I guess, in this week, um, how can we kickstart the conversation about decolonization and where, where should the movement start? I think, yeah, um, consuming Indigenous media, um, even on um, even on FBI this week, um, the show Race Matters um, at, earlier this week, um, Georgia and Sarah both really deadly did a whole conversation around reconciliation that I reckon people should check out. Um, reading books like Dark In You, um, uh, just, you know, consuming or... Um, you know, um, using your own time, your own resources to actually um, look, um, get Aboriginal perspectives without um, that are already available, and then also um, um, getting your bodies to sort of um, reconciliation weeks. But in big businesses and big sort of um, government institutions, like, like sort of like I work in, it's also not just leave uh, First Nations staff to be the ones that are doing the reconciliation week because um, you know. Um, where we've kind of already reconciled with ourselves. So it's actually, um, it's, you know, it's the other side that needs to reconcile with us. So I think um, if you are an organisation, just don't leave all the Reconciliation Week activities to your First Nations staff. If anything, you know, give them some space to sort of enjoy other Reconciliation Week activities happening all around you. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Nathan. Thank you. That was Nathan Sentence, a Wiradjuri man from the Australian Museum, talking with us about the pitfalls and challenges surrounding National Reconciliation Week. Next up, we have a story about the laws surrounding revenge porn and the words we should be using when discussing the disturbing phenomenon. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Just a quick warning for listeners, we are about to discuss sexual harassment and abuse. Uh, you've no doubt heard about revenge porn, the act of sharing previously consensually shared sexual images with, uh, without express permission or consent. While the name of the act has been widely accepted as, in quotes, revenge porn, academics such as Nicola Henry are trying to move away from that term as it is seen as not only identifying limited types of behaviour. Our executive producer, Natalie Sekolovska, spoke to Nicola, who is an associate professor at RMIT University, about why the language we use in referring to this crime can have an enormous impact on the survivors, as well as the outcome for the perpetrators. Here's Nat with the story. Here is Nat with the story. It's not coming through. Give me a moment. Is it the same thing as revenge We'll start that again for you. I'm sorry. Hi, Nicola. Thanks for chatting with us today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Natalie. So to begin, what is image-based abuse and is it the same thing as revenge porn? Okay, so let me start with the term revenge porn. Um, That's been widely understood to mean the distribution or the sharing of nude or sexual images, often by a jilted ex-lover, in order to get revenge. But unfortunately, that term is quite problematic. Um, It really only captures one motivation, that being um, revenge, and it doesn't capture a whole range of other motivations that people might have for sharing nude or sexual images, such as sexual gratification, to make money, to blackmail or extort somebody, to control someone in a, in a relationship. 
um, to build social status or to make fun of somebody. So the other the other issue too is that when we're talking about intimate images, we're not just talking about the sharing of intimate images and the term revenge porn is often exclusively thought about in relation to the distribution, but we also have situations where a person has been recorded without their knowledge or their consent. So you might have heard of the term upskirting or downblousing, uh, people putting secret cameras in toilets in public places or in private homes and bedrooms to film um, a, a consensual sexual encounter, for example. So we don't like the term revenge porn. Um, we feel that it doesn't capture a range of different motivations, that it minimises the harms, that it likens non-consensual imagery to the production of commercial pornography, um, but it also focuses the attention on the content of the image rather than on the abusive action or actions of perpetrators. So that's why we prefer the term image-based abuse or image-based sexual abuse. And that really captures three key behaviours. One is the non-consensual taking or creation of nude or sexual images. The second is the non-consensual sharing or distribution of nude or sexual images. And the third is making threats to share or distribute nude or sexual images. You've spoken a lot, I guess, about the motivations of perpetrators. So what are some of the reasons uh, perpetrators act this way when it comes to image-based abuse? Image-based abuse is such a broad and complex phenomenon. It does capture so many different behaviours. So I'll just give you a few examples here. One might be where a perpetrator films or photographs a sexual assault or a rape. There might be other instances where an abusive partner or an ex-partner threatens to share nude or sexual photographs or videos of the victim in order to prevent them from leaving the relationship or pursuing an intervention order or really as another form of control and abuse in a domestic violence context. And how prevalent is this kind of abuse? The one survey that we did back in 2016 was the first comprehensive survey of image-based abuse in Australia. We surveyed over 4,000 participants who were aged between 16 and 49. And what we found in that survey was that one in five respondents reported being a victim of image-based abuse. So that included either the non-consensual taking or creation of a noodle sexual image or the non-consensual sharing of a noodle sexual image or a threat to share those images. But we did find um, that uh, one in ten in our survey reported someone sharing a noodle sexual image of them without consent. And we did a follow-up study a year later and we found the same, we had the same finding. Are all of these one-off cases of image-based abuse or are there also established online sites that share these images as well? What we've also done, we've done other research, we've um, did a study looking at the websites that host non-consensual nude and sexual imagery. We looked at porn websites, we looked at social media, image boards, community forums and a whole range of other platforms. And what we found there is that, and again because these Um, these perpetrators are not necessarily sharing images as a way to get revenge against a partner or an ex-partner, but they're actually sharing images to build their social status amongst an online group of male peers, or they're doing it for sexual gratification purposes. So in these, many of these cases, victims don't know that their images are out there, that they're being hosted on these particular platforms, because the trading in those images is happening in secret. I think that's a really interesting point because now with the development of artificial intelligence, I guess it kind of fuels the secretive nature 
of this kind of abuse, then it means that videos can now also be manipulated and not just photos. So how troubling is all of this and also how convincing as well? This is a very concerning trend, the use of artificial intelligence or machine learning to uh, create what's known as fake pornography. Uh, so where a person's face is stitched onto a pornographic video, um, so it makes it look as if they are appearing in their own porn video. It's really, really concerning because even though we've had technology for a long time that, you know, photoshopping and, and you know, being able to digitally alter images to make it look as if someone's appearing in a photograph or a video. What makes artificial intelligence um, and the, the techniques that have been used far more concerning is that they're able to create these videos that look so real that are very difficult to discern whether or not they're fake. And so while this is a concern in relation to kind of political context, so um, manipulation of um, prime ministers and presidents to make it look as if they're saying something that they never said. And that's obviously another concern, but equally of concern is where not just famous people, but also ordinary people where their um, their faces are stitched onto pornographic videos. And there can be really severe consequences that arise um, from, from the use of that technology. And the status of image-based abuse under Australian law, is it actually illegal? It is illegal under Australian law. So over the last five years, we've seen a lot of changes happening in the Australian context, particularly over the last couple of years, actually. So all jurisdictions in Australia now have specific criminal offences, with the exception of Tasmania. At the federal level, under the telecommunications legislation, we also do now have um, offences in relation, specific offences in relation to um, these types of behaviours. And they do also, interestingly, compared to other countries, they do also cover digitally altered images, so where artificial intelligence or some kind of um, other technology is used to change a, a photograph or a video, those images are also captured under the legislation in Australia, which is good to, to see. We also do have civil laws as well, and they've, they've, um, the federal government introduced a civil penalties scheme uh, last year um, that uh, just gives the victims another avenue if they don't wish to see the perpetrator end up in court or end up in jail. Uh, there, there are other options for victims should they you know, want to go down that pathway. So when it comes to penalties for our Sydney listeners, um, I think under New South Wales law that perpetrators will face a maximum sentence of three years behind bars and an $11,000 fine. And I think that's similar um, in other states as well. Do you think that penalties like this are enough? I think the law is just one option. It's always reactive. It's always after something's happened. Um, I think it's good that there are specific criminal offences available. I think it's good that there is a significant criminal penalty attached to where this happens. But I think it's just really important to note that not all victims will want to go down the criminal justice pathway. And um, that's why we need to have a range of other options that are available to them. And for some cases, you know, for young people in particular, I, I don't feel like a criminal justice uh, penalty is appropriate unless, you know, we've got the really kind of severe cases of image-based abuse. But I, I am I am wary of an overly punitive approach to dealing with this problem. And I think the, the key solution to this problem is really around education and putting resources in place um, to teach 
people, not just young people, but people of all ages around to teach them about um, the ethics of sharing images, with taking images without consent, sharing images without consent. And, and really, the other thing too is, is the gendered issue. So we, you know, young women in particular are more likely to experience image-based abuse. So I think we need to have resources in place to support young women, but also to address some of the um, problematic stereotypes and attitudes around gender and sexuality. So if someone's experienced image-based abuse, where can they go to for support? So the first place to go to if you've experienced image-based abuse would be to, um, well, there's a couple of things, but I'd suggest uh, going to the Office of the eSafety Commissioner's image-based abuse portal. There's lots of advice for people that had this experience or if you've got someone you know you're trying to support who's, who's had this experience. But also there are a number of free confidential counselling helplines such as 1-800-RESPECT that can provide uh, referrals and advice and support for people who have had those experiences or someone who's supporting someone who has. In some cases, victims of image-based abuse may wish to contact the platforms, the digital platforms, social media sites. Um, so that's another option to request that those images are removed from those platforms. Um, so there there are a range of things, but I think the, the image-based abuse portal is, is a really good first step. And you're also about to launch a survey about image-based abuse. Can you tell us more about what's involved, who can participate and where our Sydney listeners can get involved? Yeah, thanks. So we are doing another study looking at bystanders and what they think they would do if they witnessed someone sharing a nude or sexual image of another person without their consent or if they saw someone secretly taking a photograph or a video of another person and we are recruiting for focus group discussions in Melbourne, Canberra, Adelaide and Sydney and if your listeners are um, do participate in those focus groups, they'll also do a survey. Great, well thanks so much for your time Nicola, it was really great to have you on. Yeah, no worries thank you so much. Natalie, take care That was Nicola. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 with Swetha and Shami that, right, that was Nicola Henry, an associate professor at RMM, RMIT University, in conversation with Natalie Seklovska regarding the rhetoric and importance of legal issues surrounding image-based abuse, otherwise known as revenge porn. Now we have uh, Bella Zaid here in the studio. And to start that segment, from Alabama to South Australia, from Georgia to New South Wales, legal and moral restrictions continue to be placed on the bodies of women who should otherwise be given a choice to exercise their bodily autonomy. We have Bella Ziadi, a year 12 student from Sydney, who was so moved by the struggle facing pregnant women both here and overseas. She has organized a rally to help fight for reproductive rights. Hey, Bella. Hello. Thank you for coming on the show today. Oh, it's so fine. Um, so can you describe the moment you first felt that you wanted to organize this rally? Definitely. Well, it happened to me two weeks ago on a Thursday, and it was definitely emotionally charged. I was just, it was just my reaction to what was going on in the, in the U.S., and I kind of felt personally targeted and attacked, and I was like, I cannot be eradicated from choice. I can't, I can't stand that. So I talked to my friends about it who were so beautiful and supportive and I started a march and I've been so overwhelmed with the support. It's at 10,000 people now 
and it's it's just so That's amazing so incredible do you think that um many young people your age are conscious of the need to fight for medical rights for people with uteruses yes and no a lot of awareness has been sparked by um all the awareness the march has projected but i do actually believe that that this age is very very woke and is aware of their own rights and the need to fight for them. So in what ways do you think the abortion bans in the US reflect the way that people with uteruses are being treated here in Australia? It's frightening. It's so frightening because we are so influenced by that Western culture that it's it may as well turn into our reality with especially with the way things are going. It's it's just shocking and it's just the fact that abortions will never ever not be a thing. It is either safe and accessible or it's a backyard abortion which leads to deaths and it's just it's just disgusting. Yeah. So do you think the education around sex consent and bodily autonomy is being taught in schools adequately? You're a year 12 student. Yes. I can speak for my school. I have been taught that all the contraceptive methods aren't 100% guaranteed to prevent um, pregnancy but I do believe that there always is a bit more of education needed, not necessarily from schools, but just from the media, just from anything. I think everyone can... In this process, I've learned so much, and I think that everyone has so much more to learn. Everyone what, always does. What have you learned, Bella? I have learned that um, that like these rights don't just stand for women. It's for anyone with the uterus. And that was such an awakening moment for me that it's not just women who face this. There's a whole, whole other other groups of people who are affected. Anyone with a uterus, non-binary people, intersex people. And it's that silence that is shocking because it's not given enough. Bella. Yes. You are amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You've inspired people across New South Wales, from school students to politicians, including Green Senator Maureen Faruqi. Well love done. Her. Love, love her. her. We love her on the show. She's Friend of the show. Um, <laughs> what advice do you have for people who want to make some noise and fight for reproductive rights? Okay. Well, my advice is that j- just do it. Yeah. There's nothing stopping you. Yes, you will be facing a lot of criticism, but it's so worth it. It's so enlightening and it's so liberating and it's needed. Your voice is needed. Everyone's voice is needed and no one should be silenced. You're awesome. Bella, (laughs) give us the rundown about the rally and what people need to know. Okay, so this is it. 11.30 a.m. to 3 at Hyde Park. We're going to start off with some speeches, some singing. I love performance poetry, so I will be doing a performance poem. And um, then we're going to march to Town Hall, where we should end the day. It's going to be a peaceful march with beautiful posters, beautiful people, beautiful cheers. And it's going to be, it's going to be fun and uplifting and just liberating. Amazing. Oh, goodness, Bella, we could talk to you all day. But unfortunately, <laughs> we have very little time with you this that morning. That is okay. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Thank uh, you guys for having me. No, our pleasure. Thank you. Oh, that thank was, you. That was Bella, a Year 12 student who was organizing a rally to help support pregnant people in Australia and the overseas maintain their bodily autonomy. You can march alongside Bella at the rally on June 9th. Is that right? Correct. Yes, at Hyde Park. We'll be tweeting out a link to the Facebook event very soon.
And that's all the time we have for today. Big thanks to our producer, Natalie Sekolovska, who also created that wonderful package for us in the show, um, to Eden Faithful and to our uh, digital producer, Pip Leeson. Thanks again to our guests, Nathan Sentence, Henry, um, Nicola Henry and Bella Ziardi. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, here is a song. It's called Surprise Me by Mahalia. Enjoy.